Blog Talk Radio. Hello all, this is Dr. Lawrence Simon. The show is The Stories We Live By. And uh, before I start uh, talking about crazy making stories and uh, crazy stories, um, I wanted to thank Nikki Starr. I was on her show this morning. I want to thank all the other people who were on. Uh, it was a blast for me. Uh, I think her show is terrific. I hope everybody listens, and I hope everybody comes and listens to this show as well. Um, so uh, I wanted to talk today about what makes us crazy and a few things I have to say about being crazy. First of all, being crazy does not mean being sick, literally sick. Uh, to be crazy is to be a human being. And having said that, I don't think anybody, and this includes me, isn't crazy from time to time for longer or shorter periods. Um, and I'm not going to talk about the 400 ways that psychiatrists now have to call you crazy. Uh, they, they, that implies, again, they imply there's something wrong with you. Even worse, there's something wrong with your brain, and it's incurable, and uh, you have to spend the rest of your life on some kind of toxic psychiatric drug. And again, I'm not, I, I should say this, I'm not against people taking psychiatric drugs. As long as they don't realize it's not a medicine, it's just another damn drug being peddled by the, the uh, super-rich drug companies, um, and that they realize how potentially dangerous these drugs are, and that they realize that if they're in a crazy state, um, by their own opinion, and I'll talk about that in a second, if they're in a crazy state, uh, there's nothing wrong with them. Okay? Uh, they're, 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 they're doing something to protect themselves from some great emotional pain. They're suffering, um, and the suffering leads to all kinds of strange ways that people have of dealing with that suffering, and very often crazy stories and, and crazy making make us suffer even more. So being crazy is not a particularly good thing, even if it's a human thing, even if it means that there's nothing wrong, this is your way of adapting to the world, uh, and if you look at it that way, um, life becomes very different. I mean, for example, uh, if I say to somebody, or you say to me, you have a problem, there are two ways I could recognize that statement. One is, there's something wrong with me, I have a problem. Okay? I need to be fixed. And then I start saying all kind of stupid things like, I need to change. Listen, you change your socks, your underwear, I hope, you change your clothing, um, you change where you live, you don't change yourself. You grow. You learn. Uh, you develop new skills. You, 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 you live in new places. You find people who are less toxic and hurtful to you in your life. But you don't change. There's nothing defective about you that needs to be changed. The other way, again, is, is I have a problem. 2x plus 16 equals 64. Solve for x. I have a problem. Something needs to be solved. And if you look at it that way, if you look at the, the kind of craziness that way, then what you really need is a teacher, someone to help you clarify what you're thinking and feeling, what kind of story you've ingested from your past that, that's adding to or getting you into all kinds of psychological pain and difficulty, and life becomes a very different hunt. 
It becomes a hunt for the kind of solutions that uh, in your creativity and your ability you can put together rather than passively sitting in someone's office uh, and being told you got this wrong with you, you have that wrong with you. And uh, uh, unfortunately, more and more, uh, the psychiatrists that, that you see are not even called psychiatrists. They call themselves psychopharmacologists. And uh, the average time it takes them to listen and write a script for you, uh, a prescription, is 12 minutes. At, at an emergency room, that's been, been, been demonstrated. 12 minutes, they know everything they need to know about you, and, uh, and that's it. So psychiatry has hundreds of ways of telling you crazy. I'm not going to talk about any of that. I think it's nonsense. Um, I think we all know when we're crazy. We all know when we're so agitated we can't sit still. We all know that when we're depressed and can't get out of bed and we want to commit suicide, uh, that our pain uh, is being dealt with in a way that maybe is not the best. We all know, and we deep down do know, uh, that when we start hearing voices screaming at us that we're no good or we should jump out the window uh, and we become terrified, we know deep down that something needs to be faced and something needs to be changed. We know it. So I'm not going to tell you what craziness is or madness. I like the word madness. It's a judgment, but I like it better than psychosis or all the other psychiatric terminology that's been uh, uh, invented. It's a nice old term. People used to go mad all the time. And by the way, you go mad. You create the madness as a response to something toxic in life. Now, what is it? What is it that makes it makes us go mad this way, or act in desperate ways, or act in ways that we know are not in our interest? What allows us to to listen to somebody and and go into some cult religion that has us do all kinds of destructive things rather than constructive things? What what is it that drives us out of our minds? Um, and I find that there are really four types of situations, and I want to discuss each of the four in, in sequence. And by the way, at any point anybody wants to call in, um, that could be worked. Okay, the first involves death. You're not allowed to talk about death. By the way, you can't. I mean, you, if you say, I'm afraid of dying, people run from you. There used to be a time when people understood they were going to die. Um, they, and they came to grips with it somehow. In America today, you're not allowed to die. I mean, you're not allowed to be unhappy. Uh, death is an absolutely forbidden, forbidden topic to discuss. Uh, if you say to somebody, I have cancer, their eyes glaze over. They become terrified. They may really run away from you. Uh, people who are very ill will tell you there's no one to talk to. Uh, maybe it's catching. And, and, and you're left lonely in, in that state. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, we're all going to die, and I do believe. And how we deal with that death, you see, is going to determine what kind of craziness we use or what kind of sanity we use to deal with death. For many people, and I think I'm that way too, it's not the death that I'm afraid of. Although I've got to tell you, I'm afraid of dying in a hospital. I'm scared shitless of modern medicine. Uh, I have a friend, a friend of 40 years, who is right now lying in a New York hospital. He had a brain bleed. And uh, after hearing what he's been through in the last month, I said to my wife, uh, if this happens to me, wait an hour before you call the ambulance. 
uh, I'm really not sure I want to ever confront uh, what he's confronting in this desperate attempt to save him with the tubes going in and out. And again, I don't want to speak for him, although we can't ask him anything because his brain uh, is so damaged at this point that he can't even breathe for himself, let alone say what he wants. And it's interesting that everybody knows what they want for him, but nobody seems to know what they what he wants for himself. Uh, we just desperately look at him, and 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 it's 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 that's part of what my terror is, is that I don't want to be connected to a machine and become a machine and have life become meaningless. I'm afraid of that. I don't know about you, but I am. It's not the death then; it's not mattering. I think that human beings feel they have to matter they have to be there and one of the reasons i think there is so much craziness around religion uh and again i don't think all religion is crazy but a lot of it i think really is crazy making and crazy is the idea that i will last forever if my body goes at least my consciousness my awareness will last forever uh and the things that people will do to stop to continue existing at least psychologically that seems to be incredibly powerful. It's unbearable to think you don't matter. Um, <clears throat> children have told me over the years they would much rather a parent who's angry would hit them or spank them or punish them and get it over with than stop talking to them. To be meaningless in the eyes of the world is an incredibly painful, death-like experience. At least I think so. At least my experience tells me that. Uh, I think everybody who's talking on blog talk radio, and this includes me, is saying something that matters to them that they really hope will matter to somebody else. Um, I so enjoyed Nikki's program this morning because what I had to say and what others had to say mattered to all of us. And it wasn't so much that maybe the topic was important, although I think the topic itself mattered. It's it mattered to us. The guy who killed John Lennon many years ago, Mark David Chapman is his name. So you could become famous if you kill somebody famous. When they asked him, why did you do this? He said, I am John Lennon. And there can't be two of us in the world. Now, this is crazy because it's not true. And again, he's not sick. This is a desperate young man. And by the way, let me say this. I am not excusing his behavior. What he did was wrong, morally atrocious. It is morally atrocious to kill another human being so you can take their identity or you can become famous yourself. But my guess is that Mark David Chapman felt he was a nothing, a nobody, and that was intolerable. And one of the most famous and loved people in the world at that time, uh, of uh, the whole Beatles group was, To this day, their music sells in the millions. And one of the most famous and beloved of the Beatles was John Lennon. And he, in his desperation, was crazy to become John Lennon. I could go on a long time about this in terms of our hunt for celebrity in this society. Uh, I'm thinking about this poor little girl. Um, See, I'm having a senior moment. Who's the kid who, ah, never mind, you know who she is. One who had her kids taken away on the drugs. 
Everybody wanted to be her. The kids are imitating her. And now they can't wait to chomp her down, to smash her into the ground, because she dared show she's just another unhappy, silly teenage girl whose life has run out of, of her control, and she's crazy. Not sick, but sure as hell, that kid's crazy. It'll come to me before the show is over. But anyway, um, our hunt for celebrity. Why? How many people out there don't like who they are and want to be someone else who's famous? And then we're all shocked when the famous person, having sought fame, made millions of dollars, commits suicide. I remember Janis Joplin. Janis Joplin made millions. People followed her all over, her songs, her records. It was all fabulous. And she drank herself to death. She killed herself with drugs. So many of these people who make it, what were they looking for? They were looking to matter. And somehow being a celebrity for many people may not be enough. Um, I'm going to talk in a bit about what I think makes Now Let me talk about it now. What makes us matter? I think when we're loved. I think when we're genuinely respected and genuinely liked. And a child who comes out of a family in which they experience that, when they look at their parents' face and they see the joy that's there because they're here in the world with them, says to them, you matter. I think children go to school, they have to matter. Uh, we have a country now where we have these huge high schools, and I think a lot of kids who don't matter in their own mind and seems not to matter in anyone's mind come to school, and there they fall through the cracks and they don't matter, or even worse, they're bullied. Almost every one of the youngsters who has committed mass murder in a high school or a junior high school has fit that profile. Kids who are outsiders and who felt they didn't matter, and when you take a life and you're all over television, man, suddenly you do seem to matter. Okay. So I think we need to matter, and I think meaningless drives us crazy, a feeling of we're not there, we're not important. The second thing that seems to drive us crazy is our need to, in, to not be evil and to feel that evil really doesn't exist. And let me define evil. I, I think there's an evil with a little e and an evil with a big e. And a little e is, I think, when any of us are indifferent to the suffering of other people, and cause the suffering. Or no, somehow on some level, we could be doing something to make them less suffer, suffer less. Big E is when we do things to people and cause suffering and like it. And unfortunately, history shows us that there are really evil people in the world, people who do real evil. I shouldn't say evil people, but people who do evil, because I don't like ascribing it to the individual what makes somebody evil? What makes somebody a Hitler, a Osama bin Laden? Um, I think relates to the first. It's, I, I'm not going to be meaningless. I'm, not, I'm going to matter. But here there's a great rage, a great hatred. And when you have this great hatred and you dehumanize your fellow human beings, evil can flow very, very easily. I, again, I did a show some time ago on government and most people who go into government scare the hell out of me because they don't seem to tremble at the responsibility they have at their own decision-making, that what they do hurts somebody. Nobody can make a decision that's good for everybody. 
And, and rather than be humble, they stand up there now on television and all over how great they are, how wonderful. They know everything. They can do everything. Um, and then talk about the enemy, the evildoers in the world, whether it's the other side talking about us or us talking about the other side, and gleefully talking about inflicting pain and punishment. Uh, on, that scares the hell out of us. And the idea that we are not good that we're not worthy of love, that we're not worthy of being alive, drives us crazy and drives us into those states of mind that says, I am perfect. I am only good. I can never be criticized. I'll never accept the criticism because it's too much to bear that we think that we're flawed. And here, too, I, I blame so much on psychiatry and psychology who take people who feel desperately flawed and are struggling to get out of that state. I mean, how flawed do you have to be? How evil and bad do you have to be? Feel. Not necessarily have to be, but feel. How evil do you have to feel to think that you're God, or that you're Jesus Christ, or that you're Moses, or that you're George Washington, or that you're some savior of humanity? How empty and desperate must you be? And then for someone to come along and say, well, this is not your human attempt to deal with that feeling that's evil in you, but this is your attempt. To, to, to your, this is your sickness, and you're going to have to take drugs, and if you keep talking about it, we're going to lock you up in a hospital, and we'll throw away the key. It just adds to the misery uh, and the struggle of that individual not to feel that they are a bad person. Um, I've had, I've had thousands of students, most and hundreds of clients who come to me professionally. I've dealt with the law, all of them when they talk to me. I am a good person. They tell me I am a good person. It's so desperate we are to be a good person and so terrified in our own eyes that we might not be a good person. And here, too, uh, I'm going to talk about discipline uh, on some future show how easy it is for parents, for teachers, for those who deal with children to tell them how bad they are. Uh, you're aggravating me to death. You're, you're, you're no good. You shouldn't have been born. A oh, terrible, terrible burden to lay on a child. And I don't care what the child does. This comes out of the pain of the adult, whether it's a parent or a teacher or a cleric. And I do believe religion has to go beyond who's good and who's bad, who's evil, who's pure, and into the psychology of individuals, uh, because there's so much in religion that seems to promote this notion, I have to be a perfectly good person, otherwise I'm a perfect little shitball, and I'm evil and I'm bad, and that is intolerable. It leads to all kinds of agitation, rage, and madness. Next, isn't this a good long list? The next one I discovered by working with kids over a 40-year period, and that is the reality that mother and daddy, particularly mother, may not love you. I find that children who have parents who don't love them have children who know it. Very often it's denied. You get into all kinds of craziness about, uh, I do love you, I love you more than anybody. And that child does not feel in any way loved. They know that they are a burden, that they were had because grandma wanted to be grandma. 
I mean, I could tell you some terrible stories about the way in which certain children came into the world um, where they were not wanted and they became a burden and were not loved. And by the way, don't tell me that you love all your children the same. I used to say that, and I still say that. ain't true. We all have our favorites. We all have kids for one reason or another who irk us, who bother us. Uh, We have kids we may love and not really like. And it becomes very important for children to be able to come to grips with this. Uh, But it's intolerable. And I'll tell you how I first became aware of this. Um, I was working uh, uh, with a group of young mothers, all of whom had been abandoned by their husbands. Um, By the way, we do have two standards for men and women. A man who uh, screws around and leaves his wife and starts another family, he could be a son of a bitch, but he's a man. A woman who does that, oh, do we pummel her. Women can't be the same as men in this way. We, we have very powerful, powerful needs that grow out of this, this desire that mothers have to love their children no matter what and be such perfect beings in relation to their children that when a mother does act as if she doesn't like a child and may not like that child or love that child, uh, we go after her with, with the, the, the big guns. The big guns, we will not tolerate that at all. Men, however, can be sons of bitches. Oh, he's a bastard. He's no good. Uh, but he's a man, and, and we really give men all kinds of uh, wiggle room in terms of walking away from their children. But the child has to deal with this. And what was interesting about these groups, and I ran a whole series of them uh, at the hospital clinic where I worked over a period of about two or three years, is that many of these kids came up with the most fantastic stories about where their fathers were and why daddy wasn't there in their life. Uh, He's a spy. uh, He's on a mission. Many of them blame mommy for driving daddy out. And no matter the fact that the poor mother, who is often now plunged into poverty because she doesn't have daddy's income, and when she got married, she got married under the story, you're a woman, some nice man will take care of you. And by the way, you know that's not always true. Uh, most men I know, and this includes me, have all they can do to take care of themselves. The fact that they can share life with another human being is for many men a real bonus. But the idea someone's going to take care of you all of your life and you don't have to develop the skills to take care of yourself is really one of those stories that we have to start changing, particularly with women. I think we are in certain classes and in certain groups of women. Certainly my daughters felt that they would have to go to college every bit as much as my son. And one of my daughters, who who was abandoned with a baby, uh, now can earn a very nice living on her own and has health insurance and has all of the things that she needs in her life to be a mother and not be driven crazy by the kind of desperation uh, that only a parent can feel when they can't take care of their own child and the child does become a terrible burden on them. So I think to that degree it's changed. That, uh, but, but so many of these women were doing the best they could under the most difficult circumstances, and one of the reasons they came to, the, to help at the clinic is that the kids were driving them crazy. The kids were blaming them. And when we work with the kids, we discovered that the reason the kids would like to blame the mother is because then it would, give an explanation, it would create a story 
that daddy left not because I'm unlovable or he didn't love me, but because he didn't have a choice and the bad mommy drove him away. Um, everybody knows someone, and maybe you're one of those people, who spend your life looking for a substitute parent to love you. Someone who says, I care about you, I'm proud of you. Oh, uh, you know, one of the things that makes kids feel so great is when somebody puts their pictures or their work from school up on the refrigerator. The refrigerator, one of the most powerful bulletin boards in the entire known universe. And kids go over and they see their picture and their name and their work on the bulletin board or on the, especially the magnets on the refrigerator. What a great feeling it is for them. They matter, they're loved, they're cared for, powerful. It's an antidote for feeling like meaningless and feeling unloved. And it's so interesting is that I used to say to people all the time whose parents didn't love them. They didn't. Otherwise, they would have come back. They, they left. They abandoned them. They didn't send them a card on Christmas or on their birthday. And the only reason somebody would do that is because they didn't give a shit. Well, I have to tell you a quick story. I had one of these little boys, very disturbed kid, very angry, who told me his father was a spy. Right? And I used to hear that. My father's a spy, and that's not why he's around. And I used to take these kids out for an ice cream part of our session, you know, a little food, a little feeding, a little lovey poop. And I would take them out for an ice cream or a candy. And on the way back, I see someone's following us. And what was interesting was about 14 degrees. It was the middle of a freezing cold day and a freezing cold winter. And there's a guy wearing a sport jacket with, with a muffler around his neck and nothing else. And it's kind of snow is coming down. And I look and I say, I think we're being followed. He says, yeah, that's my father. He's a spy. <laughs> talk, about, talk about being made crazy by your family. Uh, and the kid's in therapy. See, the kid is the targeted one. There's something wrong with him. In any event, um, uh, uh, when, when parents do behave this way, the, the, the meaning is clear. We can make any excuse we want. But if you love your child, and for most people I know, and this includes me, I would rather die than face the death of one of my own children. And I've heard this said over and over. The worst death is the death of a child. Under certain circumstances, it can be lived with. And that is, for example, if a child dies as a soldier in war, if the child dies a hero, for example, uh, of some great service to other people, then uh, while the pain is unbearable, it may not drive us as crazy as a child who, for example, commits suicide. Uh, you want to commit, you want to get even with your parents, you know, I'll get you, I'll get me. I'll fail in school to prove that you're a lousy parent, make you crazy. Uh, but commit suicide, and I've had the, the terrible pain of working with two different couples in my long career whose child, children committed suicide. Uh, the studies show that 80-90% of marriages break up under those circumstances. The guilt, the shame, the blaming, it just becomes too much for the relationship, for most of these relationships to bear. Uh, on the other hand, if a relationship can come together over this and grieve together and love each other and, and, and in spite of all this terrible loss, uh, why, uh, then that marriage may become as rock solid as any that could possibly be. So, uh, mothers and fathers, 
kids have to feel that they're loved, that they're important to them. And if not, they're going to go crazy in one way or another, making up some kind of crazy story and acting in some kind of way that's going to bring them to the attention of the authorities or the psychiatric authorities, who, again, will not take into account the circumstances and the context, but will look at the little list that exists, does this, 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 feels this, says this, boom, mental illness, brain damage, chemical imbalance, get them on the damn pills. And finally, this is probably the hardest to talk about, and that is that life may be without external purpose, that life is an accident, that there really is no meaning in life except for that which we create. Now, I have to admit, I believe that's to be so. And I'm often jealous of really religious individuals who truly do believe and live by the golden rule and are comforted by the thought that they matter in the eyes of God, that what they're doing is right because it's been predetermined. It is right because it's right. That morals exist because they exist, and they exist in the, in, in, in the universe like, like uh, my room that I'm in exists. I can touch it. I can feel it. Uh, that they're written in stone. That I'm always jealous of that, particularly if they're not harmful to other people. Uh, and if they're not judgmental to me because of my beliefs. And again, the most intolerant people are people who claim to be religious, but because they're afraid they're wrong, can't bear to listen to somebody who tells them another story. And mine is not a religious story. Now, I believe the Ten Commandments are a terrific way to live, and I try to live up to them. I don't make it. But I true do try. I try to live up to these moral standards. But I believe that we human beings have created the laws. And we human beings have to maintain the laws. And they have to be a living set of laws that we change according to circumstance, although not change the principle that may be embodied in a particular law, whether it's a religious tenet or a, a, a law that goes on the books uh, civilly. Okay? It is unbearable for the great majority of human beings to believe life is an accident. Somebody dies, there has to be a purpose behind it. One of the ugliest scenes I ever saw was at the funeral of a child in which somebody came up to the parent and said, your child died because God wanted your child. I thought those parents were going to take that woman and tear her head right off her neck. In fact... I stood there hoping they would do it and that I could participate. What kind of a story is that? What kind of a God does she think about that would let a child die of leukemia in all kinds of pain while the parents suffered this terrible loss and say to them, the reason behind it was a good one. On the other hand, I've had loved ones die of cancer, and you get one of two things. Something good will come out of this, for other people, there'll be a purpose to my death, a purpose to my getting this illness. Uh, otherwise, you're, you're confronted with nothingness. And that goes back to the terror in number one. It doesn't matter. My life doesn't matter. And all of us seek a purpose in life. And unless we find a purpose in life, something that's more important than us, 
Um, I've always felt that my purpose was not just raising my kids, but in my teaching and working with, with people I call patients or clients, uh, caring about the next generation. A lot of people seem to have taken on the purpose in life of saving the planet. The idea of global warming, a very complicated set of ideas. But uh, since Al Gore has, has put this front and center with a human face, uh, there are an awful lot of people who are going green, and going green with a vengeance. Not just going green, but crazy green. Uh, and, and again, I'm not going to get into defining which part of this I think is crazy and which is not crazy. On the other hand, there's an awful lot of stuff that you see is bringing meaning and purpose to somebody's life. And that sounds pretty good to me. Let's save the planet or slow down the destruction of the planet so that our children and our children's children have a nice place to live. And there's greenery and there's plants and animals. Uh, uh, I think that's a good purpose. Again, I don't think it's given to us externally, but there it is. We experience it in front of us. And so I think that um, the idea that, that, that there is no purpose is an intolerable idea for everybody. And whether or not you believe there's an external purpose in life, whether God has given us what our purpose is, that there's a reason for us to be here and we have to discover it, there has to be a purpose. My own thing is you have to create that purpose uh, and if you don't, you're purposeless. Life then becomes meaningless, and the result is despair. Suicide is very, very much a possibility at the point at which somebody feels they don't matter, that they're not important, that they're unloved, that they're disconnected, that they're alienated from the world, and that life is purposeless. Uh, it's a very dangerous way to be, because then uh, the escapes or the stories that are created very often are dangerous and, and bad, crazy stories. Right? Uh, I want to talk a little bit about uh, Darwin. Right now, there's a pitched battle in the United States, in many of our school districts, about Darwin's theory of evolution. And you have to wonder, why is this theory so hated? And it's hated for the very reason I'm talking about now. What Darwin said is that human beings are not here for any specific purpose. We evolved. We are another animal, a smart animal, a clever animal, a meaning-seeking animal, a special animal, but that's what we are. And we're not above and we're not outside of the range of animal life on this planet. We are part of it. I think a lot of people who believe in green and, and in saving the planet are people who also tend to believe that they're part of the world and that they're such a part of the world that they, they can't exist without that world being there. The idea that there's an escape clause, that, that if we blow up the world, uh, we're going to go up to heaven and there'll be the rapture and there's that, that wonderful whole story about what will happen to those who, who are... are uh, uh, who have taken Jesus into their heart or, or whatever this particular thing or this idea. And, and all of these ideas are attempts at giving meaning and purpose to life and denying Darwin. Darwin is hated. Freud was hated because Freud said, we're animals, and most of what we believe is unconsciously driven. Most of what we believe is a defense mechanism. 
Most of what we believe, we believe because we're crazy. And again, hey, I can't, I can't lie. I tend to believe that as long as it's not destructive, craziness is craziness. Uh, and that, in one way or another, we need to be mad. We need, otherwise, uh, we have to feel that our life is meaningless. And, and that's an, such an interesting thing for me, even though I accept Darwin, and I am a true believer in evolution. And by the way, it's called a theory, because it's not a fact. And those people who would want to teach children creationism or scientific creationism really are not talking about a theory. They don't say to these kids, believe it or don't believe it. They say, Darwin's full of shit, and this is the truth. And, and we'll hit you over the head and throw you out if you say, well, demonstrate the truth of this for me. Uh, there are no, no scientific studies that come out of science, creationism. You either believe or you don't believe it's a matter of faith, and again, I will never knock anybody's faith, but I certainly knock their faith if they tell me my faith is wrong and I can't teach my children and my students according to what I believe is true, so, and, and what I have faith in. And yes, I have faith in Darwin's theory that evolution is a fact, even though we know, can't fill in all the specifics and probably will never fill in all the specifics. But this battle is going on and on, and I'm not sure it will ever be over. Why? Because to accept Darwin, even Darwin understood that, he purposely did not write about human beings when he talked about the evolution of the animal and the plant world. He left it out because he understood what was going to happen to him in his career, in his life, if he said, we're just another animal and there is no purpose for our being here. It was a mechanism, an evolutionary mechanism that brought us to the state of mind and the biological abilities that we have as human beings. So, while I'm a Darwinian, I also accept that Darwin, even though I can't accept Darwin as stated, uh, I can know all I want to know about the fact that I'm evolved, but my life like I have meaning. So, I have a few minutes left. I gave myself 45 minutes. And um, I have six minutes left, it says. How about I get some phone calls? Anybody want to call in? Otherwise, I'm going to call it a day. I've been on, I've been on the phone. Uh, I have tinnitus. And I use this phone with the, the ear with the phone. And when I get off the phone after an hour, my tinnitus is worse. Uh, that's, a, that's a weird one hearing a high whistling sound that nobody can do anything about. Eh, whatever. So, okay. Then I'm going to uh, sign off. And for those of you who are here, I thank you for listening. For those who you will listen to the archive, I thank you for listening to that in advance of your listening. And I'm going to say goodbye. Take care. Until next time.